Our scripture for this morning is Daniel 10, verses 1 to 14. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true. It was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come the word of the Lord. Quite a remarkable account and quite a remarkable experience for Daniel. While some people, I think we can, we can all, um, uh, I think we've all had conversations like this, maybe at some point you've believed this or still do, but uh, while some people uh, think that to believe that there is a spiritual and supernatural reality outside of our own is an old-fashioned way to think uh, for an advanced civilization. But I would say, who can call the loss of life, the abuse of our planet, and human cruelty to other humans, and the abundance of all of that that we've seen in the last two centuries, who can call any of that advanced. We have new gadgets and technology, but we have very old problems as a human race. And this passage today sheds light on that. 
No matter how advanced we become, we have very old problems. The same conflicts recycle century and millennia after century and millennia. And we develop on a spiritual level insight today in Daniel chapter 10 as to why that is. The Welsh preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones in uh, one of his books said, it is the supreme achievement of the devil to persuade man that at the point where he is most muddled and enslaved, he is most free. Daniel and his friends in the 6th century BC became refugees when they were young. Their land, their home, their city, everything they knew destroyed forever. And they were taken as teenagers and removed and lived the rest of their lives as political refugees in a foreign land through the kingdoms, through the empires of Babylon and then Persia after Babylon. Daniel and his friends were victims. They were victims of the world of their day. The wars, empires toppling each other, and the human tragedies, vast human atrocities. Daniel and his friends were young victims and would remain, to a degree, victims for the rest of their lives. And Daniel lived much of his life, though with integrity. If you've been following along in the book of Daniel, this is a guy with impeccable integrity, professionally and personally. But Daniel lived much of his life in conflict with the surrounding culture, personally and professionally. He couldn't escape it, but he handled it so well. And Daniel, near the end of his life, he's an old man now, it's about 536 BC, the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. He discovers in chapter 10, and this is amazing because chapter 10 is, is opening up for us, is introducing for us the grand, climactic, amazing vision, the final vision of Daniel's book that we will hear about in chapters 11 and 12. And chapter 10 is a setup for that last climactic vision of the book. And Daniel discovered, as what we see in chapter 10, that there were spiritual causes behind all the movements of the world that brought so much tragedy and destruction in his early years and caused him to be a political refugee for the rest of his life. He discovers the spiritual causes behind it, not simply the metaphysical, but the out-of-our-time-and-space dimension causes of all that was happening in his life and in the world. And although that understanding overwhelmed him to the point where he fell asleep in exhaustion and anguish and fear, and though those very realities can cause us great fear, even today, there is so much comfort in this message of Daniel chapter 10. And let's get into it. And what I think you're going to find is that the God of Daniel, the God of the Bible, will let nothing in heaven or on earth prevent the spread of his message and his plan in human history. The God of the Bible will let nothing in heaven or on earth prevent the spread of his truth and grace. Grace. And I want to talk to you about the resistance, the resistance that opposes God. He has enemies. 
The resistance that opposes God and, and, and then how we are to resist that resistance ourselves. And then finally, I'm going to talk about how God defeated that resistance. So three ideas, the resistance that opposes God, the resistance that we resist in God's name, if you are God's people, and the resistance that God himself defeats. Now, the resistance that opposes God, that is against him, is personal, is ancient, and it is still present. From the very beginning of biblical history, we see that there is a personality, not just a force, but a personality that is, is at odds with God and undermines our own good, the good of humanity. It was in Genesis chapter 3 that uh, the serpent said, did God actually say, right? The serpent said this to Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And from that moment, from that manipulative twist on truth, from that moment when the serpent began to, to question the, good, the goodness and authority of God in creation for humanity, from that moment forward, human history has been one conflict after another. And it finds its source in the serpent causing the man and the woman to doubt the good intentions of their creator. And so in judgment on the serpent, God came and said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And so the Bible asserts that intelligent, powerful beings exist who do not have your good intentions, who do not have the best intentions of creation and humanity in mind. And the Bible illustrates this when we see Daniel receiving another visitor, another vision, and another visitor. Right, and so he tells us that, that in the third year of, of, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's about 536 BC, uh, he, he receives another vision. Uh, but we're not going to hear about the actual content of the vision, of the, like a dream, until the next chapter, chapter 11. This whole chapter, chapter 10, it's all, a set, it's all setting us up for the amazing vision that Daniel is going to hear. What happens first is before he receives the vision from the angel, he sees a vision of somebody else. Listen to what Daniel sees when he looks up, when he's on the banks of the Tigris River. He sees a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl. It's like a translucent, beautiful translucent gem. Uh, his body was like beryl. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And then Daniel's reaction to this vision of a man-like being was what? Verse 9, he said, And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And many scholars believe, and I agree, that this is not an angel that Daniel is seeing above the river. 
because Daniel's reaction to this image, his reaction and the very language of the image itself is is reminiscent of what the prophet Ezekiel, contemporary of Daniel, what Ezekiel saw when he looked up and saw the likeness of the presence of God. Look at Ezekiel chapter one, check it out. Very, very, very similar language and image. Daniel's response to this figure is very much like what the apostle Paul experienced when he saw the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. The response and the language is also similar to the apostle John when he records in his revelation, Revelation chapter one, what it was like for him to behold a vision of the risen, glorified Jesus in heaven. So the language points to the fact that Daniel saw some representation of God himself, and it absolutely exhausted him. But then an angel, it might be Gabriel, we don't know. Gabriel's come up before in Daniel's experience, we don't know. But an angel lifts Daniel up at that point. Daniel's flat on his face in a deep sleep. And and the angel comes and lifts Daniel up and encourages him and strengthens him to hear the message that is about to come in the next chapter. But the angel tells him something very interesting. He says, hey, I've been trying to get to you. But as Gandalf said to Frodo, I was detained. He goes on to say something amazing. He says to Daniel, I've been trying to get to you for three weeks. Uh, Let's assume three weeks space time. Okay, three weeks Daniel's experience. I've been trying to get to you, Daniel, for 21 days while you've been praying and fasting. And he says, and this is why I've been detained for three weeks. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. And he goes on to say, now, Daniel, when I'm done explaining the vision to you, I got to leave again. I got to go back and fight the prince of Persia. And then guess what? After he leaves, the prince of Greece is coming, which is remarkable because we know historically the, the, the next world, and it was three centuries later, but the next world power after Persia was, was Alexander the Great and Greece. And so now here we are reading this and our minds are blown, right? Because Daniel, for a nanosecond in human history, catches a glimpse of a reality as real as time and space, but outside of it in which he sees that spiritual beings are engaged in massive cosmic conflict that directly impacts and is related to our own world and its affairs. I kind of imagine it sort of like a Thanos versus uh, Captain Marvel type of a conflict. I don't know, but I like to think of it that way. Um, behind the world's social and political conflicts, Daniel is discovering, discovering, behind empires rising and falling are personalities, beings with purpose and with not good intentions. And in our day, according to the New Testament authors who would pick up on this theme, especially in the book of Revelation, Check out Revelation, because as Glenn Parkinson says, Daniel and Revelation are like bookends, because Daniel picks up, uh, Revelation in the New Testament picks up really kind of where Daniel will leave off. But what we see in our day 
if you consider our day to be the last days, as the New Testament talks about the time, all of human history after the ascension of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit's birth, birthing the church in the book of Acts, what we discover about our own day, the Apostle Paul sums up in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. What is he saying? The ultimate conflict is not human versus human conflict, although that's all we see and that's all we experience according to our senses. He says that's not what we're wrestling against, but he goes, we're wrestling against the rulers. Now think of the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece, okay? But against the rulers and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is what Daniel caught just a glimpse of in this amazing vision given to him by the angel. The prince of Persia, who resisted him for 21 days so much that Michael, an archangel, according to the book of Revelation, Michael, who has somehow has some oversight over the nation of Israel because he's called at the end of chapter 10, the prince of Israel, your prince, uh, the angel says, says to Daniel, Michael is your prince. It took Michael, the archangel, to come and break through that resistance so that this angel could actually get to Daniel. And so behind our conflicts, our conflicts, we're talking 2021 now, behind our conflicts, behind all refugee movements on the face of the earth, behind immigrants at the border, behind racism and class war and marital conflict and sibling conflict, behind all of it are beings we cannot begin to identify or understand or defeat. They're behind it all. But Daniel also learned that beings exist who resist those beings who oppose God. And what's encouraging and what's what is critical, if you, if you are a follower of the God of the Bible, what is critical for you to understand and also encouraging is that we can resist them also. We must resist them. But counterintuitively, we don't resist them uh, by our own means. We resist the spiritual powers that be who resist God. We resist them by faith. We don't resist them as the, as the archangel Michael resists them. We resist those powers by faith. You know, the, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, he likens Satan to, uh, to, to, a, to a roaring lion who prowls around seeking whom he may devour. I've, I've said this before, but you know, Using the image of, of a feline predator is, is quite remarkable in the Bible to describe, to describe the spiritual being, Satan, who is at the head of the spiritual metaphysical movement against God of all time. Uh, but using, using cat, uh, cat metaphors, you know, cat similes is, is remarkable because think of your household cat. I mean, my, our cat is an indoor-outdoor cat. She has an, a remarkable kill rate. I mean, I, we have seen her drag all sorts of beasts, poor beasts, into our yard. 
I mean, she has killed, she has captured and played with and killed absolutely every type of animal in our neighborhood, with the exception of two that I can tell of. I mean, you know, animals that aren't much larger than her. Um, she hasn't been able to get a squirrel, and she hasn't been able to get a crow, because crows communicate with one another and work together, and squirrels are just so fast. But other than that, she has been able to bring down absolutely every type of creature, and, and I've said this before, if she were bigger than me, she'd have eaten me by now. It's just that we feed her. So, 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 so the Apostle Peter says that's, that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing, we're dealing with beings that are smart enough and patient enough to take us out if we're not aware of our surroundings. And so in that context, Peter says something remarkable that you wouldn't think you'd be capable of doing. He says, resist him. Resist him. How? Firm in your faith. Resist him firm in your faith. And here is an answer to how we resist those forces that resist our creator. We do it by faith. You're like, what kind of practicality is that? Hold on. Listen, listen, to, listen to the result. Listen to why the angel showed up to talk to Daniel. Look at verse 12. He says, Daniel, for the first day, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Remember, what is Daniel doing for three weeks? Prayer and fasting. He is on his knees in anguish and grief, total humility and desperation, relying on his holy God. That's why the angel came. The angel came in response to Daniel's posture of prayer and humility and submission to his God. He says, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. So, I don't want you to think about that as though human beings are making angels do our will, as though we can manipulate the heavenly realms. That's not what's happening. This is not getting God and his angels to do what we want them to do because we have some type of a magical incantation in our prayers. Don't think of it that way. Think of it as parallel realms with parallel means of resistance. As Gabriel and Michael are resisting the princes of Persia and after that, Greece, Daniel is resisting in humble prayer before his God. Daniel is a prayer warrior while the angels in heaven are battling it out. Daniel doesn't know that that's going on, but as he submits himself to a life of earnest prayer for everything that was happening around him in the heavenly realms, a parallel form of resistance was taking place. So prayer is the first means by which we resist evil. The first means by which we resist evil. Actually, uh, the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith talks about means of grace, ways that God communicates his kindness and goodness and salvation to us. And one of the chief means of grace is prayer itself. So prayer is the first way that we, in faith, resist him. And the second is the gospel itself, the good news that God came to save sinners and reconcile them and forgive them and give them a new life and that nothing on heaven or on earth can change that. 
Once you belong to him, you belong to him forever. That's the gospel, and that's the second means by which we resist. You say, well, that sounds really esoteric and, 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 and ethereal. How is that practical? Well, look, Paul thought it was very practical. In Ephesians chapter 6, again, when Paul said it's not against flesh and blood, it's not people. People aren't the real enemy. People on the other side of the political aisle aren't the real enemy. People from another nation who want you dead aren't the real enemy. Your neighbor who hates your guts is not the real enemy. Who's the real enemy? He says, not flesh and blood, but spiritual powers, right? And so what does he say? He says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And now we still go, well, that's really impractical because what in the world is the armor of God, right? And then from your Sunday school class, if you're a Christian when you were five years old until today, you're still confused about what is the armor of God, right? Like, like what does the helmet look like? And, and what does the breastplate look like? And, and what does the sword look like? We get wrapped up in trying to identify every piece of armor, and that's not the point. The point is this. It's God's armor and not yours, Look at the words that describe the armor of God. I don't mean helmet, breastplate, uh, boots, you know, uh, ninja stars. I don't mean that. I mean, look at the biblical words. They are words like truth, righteousness. Look it up in Ephesians 6. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, which he calls the sword of the spirit. And then finally, he says what? What, what we've already said, praying at all times. These, these are the weapons. Those are the weapons that we're supposed to use. And what do you notice about all of them is that they're not what we provide and do ourselves. It's what God has done. It's all based on what God, all of this, faith, salvation, truth, righteousness, the gospel itself, the word of God, none of that comes from us, right? It, they're not weapons that we forge and, and bang into form and then utilize with our hands, these are weapons that God has provided. And, and the thing is that they're not even, they're not even confrontational type weapons. They're, what are they? They're, they're, they're your new identity in Christ. They're the fact that God saves alone, that God alone saves, that he forgives, that he is able to be faithful to you, that his news is good news, that he sent his son to die for you and that he's adopted you no longer no longer an exile, no longer an orphan, but a son, a daughter, an heir of his coming eternal kingdom. These truths, Paul says, are your weapons. These are your spiritual weapons. Why? It's not like you're trying to beat somebody, some demon to death with your Bible. No, what, you're guarding yourself against the attack of the enemy. You're guarding yourself with things, truths that cannot change. This is the armor of God. And Paul says, you got to put it on because your real enemy isn't, flesh, isn't the flesh and blood staring at you from across the aisle. Your real enemy is in the heavenly places. Spiritual warfare requires spiritual weapons. Medicine, therapy, counseling, education, training, money, resources, these are all good things. These are wonderful things that we get to utilize with wisdom and dispense and share with generosity. And they're all great. But they're human weapons. And like my cat, 
Satan will outsmart you and he will outlast you. And you need to fight this with spiritual weapons. So arm yourself, arm ourselves as a faith community with spiritual truth, spiritual weapons. Arm ourselves spiritually with the truth of a God who is greater than his enemies. Satan and his demonic rebels are real. It would be foolish of you to disregard their power and their intelligence and their impact on our world and your life. And it is not too hard to imagine if a prince of America exists, what he's been up to lately. And I don't think he's Captain America. He does not intend for your good. And his goal is not to sustain this society. And so as Christians, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom, as exiles in this world, put on the armor of God so that you can resist the schemes of the devil. The power of God is greater to overcome all of them, and he did, and he will. A word of caution, a word of caution if you doubt that these spiritual realities are real. And a word of caution if you are a little bit too interested in them. You know, whether they fascinate you or intrigue you or you just feel overwhelmed and frightened by them. Um, a word of caution, and this comes from C.S. Lewis's marvelous uh, fantasy journal written by a demon, and I love it because when he opens it up, he goes, don't ask me how I got a hold of this. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's the screw tape letters. Uh, they're entertaining, uh, but very, very insightful on spiritual matters. And uh, his, his opening in the preface, the preface is, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. And the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or a magician with the same delight. What he means by materialist is someone who only believes in the physical world. The modern and the secular mentality and assumption, and, 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 and if you've been in education long enough, you know what I'm talking about. The, model, uh, the modern secular assumption is that uh, there is no spiritual reality. All that exists is what is physical and material. Uh, but then the, the traditional and pagan way of looking at life has a different assumption, that, that spirituality is everywhere and it rules everything and it is the ultimate thing. So there are kind of competing ways of, of looking at life and the world, that this, the physical, is all we see and there is no spiritual reality. And then the opposite is spirituality is everywhere and it's the most important thing and, and it's the only thing that's important. And they're both pitfalls. Because think about it, either assumption will ultimately lead you to hopelessness and despair if you keep following the line uh, of thought um, to its logical conclusion. 
Because if there's no spiritual reality, if all we know, if all that exists is what we can feel and see and touch and our, our senses um, can, can observe, right? Then there's no, then there's no, there, if there's no spiritual reality, then physical existence is all there is, which means there's no point to it. If there's no spiritual reality, there's no purpose to our physical existence. And that leads you to hopelessness. On the other hand, if all that matters is the spiritual realm, and, and if that is so great and so wonderful, and we are so helpless to resist it, then, then what hope do we have in that either? That's all the pagan religions where all you're trying to do, and it's most religions, where all you're trying to do is appease the gods and try and manipulate them so that you can live a safe life. Either way, it leads you to hopelessness. And that's what C.S. Lewis was saying. Satan loves that. If you can believe he doesn't exist, good. He has less work to do. If you believe he's too powerful, well, now you're living in fear. And either way, it's hopelessness because it's, it's not what the Bible talks about. The Bible makes sense of all history's conflicts. It makes sense of your conflicts, and it gives a satisfying answer to the tension that we all face in the world. It gives us an answer that leads us to hope, and it's this. God who is spirit, entered the physical, the physical realm, and became flesh and blood. That's Christianity. That's who Jesus Christ is. God, who is spirit, became flesh and blood. So that not only was Jesus able to fight in the spiritual realms, but he was able to fight as flesh and blood, someone who prayed on his knees alongside of you and me. That's what's remarkable about the incarnation, is God not only fights Satan from the heavenly realms, but God fights Satan alongside of you by becoming one of us. The resistance that resists God and resists us, God undisputably defeated. but also counterintuitively. Counter Remember I said earlier, we, ha we have to resist Satan counterintuitively, right? Not with sticks and stones and, and nuclear weapons and smarts and PhDs. We, we, we don't fight that way, but we fight counterintuitively by faith, by prayer, by grabbing hold of the gospel, the good news, living by it, right? Well, at first, that's how Jesus defeated Satan as well, Counter intuitively. Satan never saw it coming. The world never saw it coming. Revelation chapter 12 talks about the archangel Michael battling the old dragon, the old certain Satan, Satan in the heavenlies. Read about it in Revelation chapter 12. And at the end of that great conflict in which Michael overthrows Satan, this is what John reveals in his revelation. He says, this is what he heard. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. Why? Listen. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered. Listen to how they have conquered, okay? We're getting back into weaponry here. Listen to how they have conquered. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. 
That was the counterintuitive victory that Satan did not see coming, neither did the wisest people in history ever see that coming. The counterintuitive destruction of evil by Jesus who hung on a Roman cross. You see, the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what did it do? It disarmed Satan from being able to accuse you anymore. That's the beauty of the cross. Satan lost his most powerful weapon. Don't you see it? You know what I'm talking about. You believe you're nothing. You believe nobody can love you. You believe you failed. Who says that to you? It's not just you. He's called the accuser. I've heard him speaking to me my whole life. You've heard it too. That's his greatest weapon, his accusations. And he's doing it constantly. It never stops. You've been listening to it again and again and again. And on the cross, Jesus destroyed his ability to accuse you anymore because those sins and those failures were hung on the cross with Jesus. That's why it says that the accuser of our brothers was thrown down because he was conquered by the blood of the lamb. The death of Christ disarmed Satan. And that's why we sing that beautiful old hymn by Charity Bancroft, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Hallelujah. And the resurrection of Jesus is historical proof that God is winning. It is the D-Day of cosmic history. Satan's days are numbered. He knows he's going down because Christ came out of that tomb and it's empty. Christianity is hope. There is no despair in it. The only despair you bring to your Christianity is, is the despair you've chosen to hold on to. But it preaches hope that though Satan instigates pandemics and racism and class war, Jesus will return in the end to end all of that. And he will prove once and for all to be the undisputed heavyweight champion of history. And the amazing thing here is that you'd only, you not only have to, you not only get to use as a guard against Satan that truth, but you also get something precious, the love and grace of God. The champion, the undisputed heavyweight champion of history is for you. Think about it. The God who made Daniel fall asleep in fear on his face is for you. And we see that in Jesus of Nazareth. That God is for you. Look at what did the angel say twice in verses 11 and verse 19 to Daniel? What got him off of his feet? What did the angel say to him? Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. We, we hear, it's exactly what Abraham, what we, what we hear about Abraham, what we hear about David, how David was the man who God loved. What do we hear when Gabriel shows up Six centuries later, to a virgin in, the land, in, in Galilee and says, Mary, something's about to happen to you. He calls her, you who are highly favored. This is the message, along with the truth that we guard ourselves with, is always grace. The love of this God who spares no expense to reach us and to save us. That's what grace is. You didn't deserve it, but he gives it to you as a gift. And this, this is the creator. This is the champion that who is for you, fill in your name, 
O'Brien, man greatly loved. And so what Paul said in Romans 8 is abundantly clear now. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor, thing, uh, nor rulers, sorry, rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's power, Daniel discovered, in the midst of very troubling, tumultuous times of his life, and as we discover even today, God's power is infinitely greater than his enemies. But God's grace is infinitely greater than our sin. God will let nothing in heaven and on earth prevent the spread of his truth and grace. And if you're listening... And if you're willing to receive it, nothing on heaven or on earth can separate you from his truth and his grace. How do we resist those forces who resist our creator and our savior? We arm ourselves spiritually with truth and grace. The truth and grace of a God who is greater. And the truth is that the Son of God defeated sin and death, not just in general, but yours, your sin, and will destroy your death forever. And grace is that this is a gift that you didn't deserve and didn't work for and can't undo. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we... Uh, Man, I, I don't know. After talking about this, I feel like passing out on my face. Um, we praise you for your word. Uh, we, we praise you for what you revealed to Daniel through his faithfulness, how you answered him and gave him a gift that we are still benefiting from thousands of years later. Father, we confess our nearsightedness. We're so worked up about people. We're so frustrated and afraid of men and women. We're so, we're so geared up, Father, about all the conflicts in our lives and in this world. Father, we confess that uh, we're blaming people who are not the enemy. We ask that you would put our eyes on heavenly things. Make us useful here as Daniel was useful here in time and space. Uh, but Father, keep our identity in heaven with you. We know we're exiles here like he was but we know we're citizens with you like he was. So Father, as we work and struggle and suffer and, 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 and resolve our conflicts and play and worship and wait here in a broken world, give us, give us your heavenly perspective that we would wage war in the heavenly places as we live by faith and as we remain on our knees in prayer. Uh, Father, let it be so. In the name of our Savior, the champion of history, Jesus Christ, amen.